Calvin, the French Reformation had no singing in their churches. Because the prayers of the faithful were so cold and indifferent, Calvin sought permission from the Council of Geneva that the Psalms might be sung. Quote, that the hearts of all might be moved and excited. End of quote. And it was from that first Psalter of 1539 that later Psalters sprang in the Reformation. The testimony of even one who was hostile to the Reformation was this. And I quote, Nothing has so opened the way to the novelties of these new religions as the new singing, sweet and insinuating of these rhymed psalms. Now this opponent to the Reformation concludes by saying that the psalms have, quote, been the chain and the cordage by which they have drawn souls. Dear ones, the Psalms have been the joy and the strength and the life and the courage and the consolation in trial and affliction and in persecution for the Calvinists of Geneva and France, for the Calvinists of Scotland, for the Calvinists of Holland and the Calvinists of England who sang them on the ships as they sailed to America. In fact, the very first book published in America in 1640 was the Bay Psalm Book. The preface to that Bay Psalm Book establishes that it is the Psalms of the Old Testament that God has specifically chosen for His people to sing in worship. Lewis Benson, the author of a classic historical work entitled The English Hymn, written in 1915, corroborates the testimony of the Bay Psalm book when he declares, and I quote, the Presbyterian Church in the colonies of America was by its varied inheritance and its own practice a psalm-singing church. End of quote. Dear ones, we have drifted. We have drifted from our historical heritage as Calvinists and as Presbyterians. But even sadder is the fact that we have drifted and we have severed ourselves from our own biblical heritage. Thus far in our series on song and worship, we have noted from God's Word that number one, song is a required element of divine worship. Song and singing in the worship of God is not optional. Second, we have noted that the nature of songs sung in worship are required by Scripture to be inspired. Non-inspired songs are never in all of Scripture given any warrant at all in the worship of God. And thirdly, we have noted that the content of songs sung in worship services of the Old Testament was specifically the Psalms of David, Asaph, and the other inspired psalmists. Now that's not to say 
that there are no inspired songs outside the Psalter from the time of David to Malachi. There are inspired songs that we find in the Old Testament that were written between David and Malachi. Perhaps one of the, the ones that we may not think of, may not come to our mind, uh, is one of the books of the Bible. The Song of Songs. Song of Solomon. It's a song. There are three songs that are specifically mentioned in the book of Isaiah. However, it is my contention that only the Psalms of David, Asaph, and the other inspired writers that have contributed to the Psalter, only these can be clearly shown to have been used in Old Testament worship after the inspired renovations of worship that were instituted by David. There were other inspired songs outside the Psalter, to be sure. But did God intend them to be sung in worship, is the question we need to ask. And I answer that by saying, I think not. And for two reasons. Two reasons why the songs that are outside the Psalter ought not to be used in worship. First of all, again, we're still in the Old Testament. All the historical accounts, without exception, of actual worship services from David all the way to the return of the exiles under Zerubbabel and under Nehemiah provide the authorized example and even the express command to use the Psalms in singing unto the Lord. In most of these instances, the true worship of God, we noted this last time, the true worship of God had been, in fact, corrupted. The true worship of God had fallen by the wayside, and God raised up reformers, reforming kings and prophets, to bring the church back to its place where it belonged and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Under Jehoshaphat and Joash and Hezekiah and Josiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, we find revival after revival after revival. And in each and every case, we find a return to the Psalms of David and of Asaph and Heman and those inspired writers. We also find, as we look at those passages, that God's curses fell upon his people in judgment when they forsook true worship, including the singing of only David's psalms. But God's blessing fell in glorious revivals when true worship was restored. And part of that true worship that was restored was, again, the singing of the psalms of David. Beloved, these revivals that we have just mentioned were not simply restoring mere outward forms to worship. These revivals were not cases of instituting a cold, indifferent religion. For example, observe very quickly the reforms of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles 29. 
You certainly won't see any cold indifference to the worship of God. In the case of Hezekiah, notice in Second Chronicles 29, beginning with verse 5, this is Hezekiah speaking to the Levites. He says, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken Him, have turned their faces away from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs on Him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Now notice in verse 8, why did the wrath of God fall? Therefore, because of these things, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to astonishment and to jeering as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. Certainly no indifference in the way that we see Hezekiah communicating. In chapter... <clears throat> Let's see. In chapter 31 of Second Chronicles, <clears throat> note this as well, verses 20 and 21, just some concluding remarks with regard to Hezekiah. There it says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment, to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. So he prospered. He did it with all his heart and so he prospered. We're not simply talking about, when we're talking about singing psalms, we're not talking about simply forms. We're talking about singing from the bottom of our hearts with all of our heart to God. Because then the people of God will prosper. To simply go through the forms and the rituals and the ceremonies will only bring God's judgment upon us. Dear ones, Christ despises a dead orthodoxy that is puffed up with intellectual pride in Revelation chapter 2, you remember the church of Ephesus was a church that was, was great in certain deeds. He says in, the Lord says to the church in Revelation 2, 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Here was a church that cared for the truth. 
They had tested those who said they were apostles and were not. They had put them outside the church. They had marked them out. In verse 3, And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and not become weary. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. Where is the vitality of this relationship with me? Where is that first love that you had at one time for me as your God? Where is it gone? Verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, Jesus Christ will not tolerate a dead orthodoxy. Those who claim to have the truth but have no passion and no zeal and no love for God in worshiping Him and serving Him. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive because of your works, because of what you stand for, but you're dead. A dead orthodoxy. In fact, dear ones, I believe the Lord will come near showing mercy to a congregation whose hearts are broken and whose faith is alive even though their outward forms of public worship are not as pure. That is, to a congregation of living, if I can use this term, heterodoxy, he'll come near showing his mercy and grace to a congregation of living heterodoxy than to a congregation whose hearts are icy whose faith is nearly dead, that is, to a congregation of dead orthodoxy. 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 43. <clears throat> In the revival and reformation of Jehoshaphat, we note these words. And he, that is Jehoshaphat, walked in all the ways of his father Asa, he did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now notice this phrase. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken, taken away, for the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. They had not completely reformed. They were not where God wanted them to be, but God poured forth much blessing upon Jehoshaphat. Because it says in Deuteronomy, you're not to worship wherever you want to worship. You're not to offer sacrifices on altars that I've not commanded. Deuteronomy chapter 12. You are to offer sacrifices in the place that I choose. That's why the word there is nevertheless. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. 
And yet God brought many, many blessings upon Jehoshaphat. Dear ones, be ever watchful, be ever vigilant over your hearts that your knowledge of God and your knowledge of his worship ever leads you to greater fellowship and communion with the eternal God. Rather than to an indifferent or in orthodoxy that is filled, as Christ said, with dead men's bones. And so the first reason, the first reason why God did not intend the songs that are not in this Psalter, that nevertheless are inspired, the first reason why He did not intend for them to be sung in worship is because all the historical accounts that we have of worship services from David to Nehemiah speak of God's people worshiping Him with the Psalms of David. The second reason, very quickly, the second reason we know God did not intend for inspired songs outside the Psalter to be used in His worship is that God did not include them in His inspired hymnal for the church. The Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is Tehillim, which is translated simply hymns. With Psalm 150, God's canon for his inspired hymnal was closed. Only these hymns are found in God's altar, and only these have his clear authorization for worship. Any other inspired songs that claim to have God's authorization will have to explain and answer two questions. Why were they excluded from God's authorized hymnal for worship? Because the canon for the Psalter was opened all the way till the time of the return of the exiles under Ezra and Nehemiah. Why were they excluded from God's inspired hymnal? That question will have to be answered. And second, where is the positive warrant in Scripture to use those particular inspired songs that are outside the Psalter. There are two passages that today we're going to spend the remaining time looking at as we seek to wrap up our, our series dealing with the Old Testament in regard to worship song. The first passage is the one that I read prior to the sermon, Isaiah 38.20. Isaiah 38.20. Simply says this, The Lord was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. I was reading from the New King James Bible and I think the authorized version says something very similar to that. As we've already noted, King Hezekiah in this particular 
this particular statement in Isaiah 38.20 is written by King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was perhaps Judah's most godly monarch. He had a terrible role model at home in his father. Ahaz was his father. You want to see what, a kind, what kind of a role model Ahaz was, you turn to Second Chronicles chapter 28. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. Verse 2, For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. That was Hezekiah's father. Ahaz, hardly a godly role model at home. Now I suppose Hezekiah could have repeated the sins of his father and he could have sought to excuse his own sins by blaming his father. I'm simply following in the paths of my father. This is the way I was trained. This is the way in which I at home was uh, led and taught. I can't be held responsible. It's a pretty popular philosophy today. Yet Hezekiah by God's grace, turned his back on the wicked ways of his father. He learned from the sins that his father committed not to walk in his sins, but to forsake those sins. You see, an ungodly example, dear ones, does not mean that we are doomed and destined to walk in the paths of the ungodly. Hezekiah became one of the most courageous reformers of all biblical history. One of the men God used most greatly in the Old and New Testament to bring about change within the kingdom of God. Not only is it likely that we as individuals can say that we're simply repeating the sins of our father or our mother and that we're not responsible. But churches can do the same thing. Churches can say, I'm just doing what was handed down to me. I'm not responsible for my form of worship or my practices of worship today. This is the tradition of the elders that was handed down. My family for hundreds of years has done this. Well, this church has practiced this. Who am I to say this isn't right? See, it's not only individuals, but churches that fall into that same trap. Saying, because my parents, or because those before me were this way, so I must walk in their paths. Hezekiah had not only reinstituted the true worship of God, but 
he came the closest of any king in Judah of reuniting the two kingdoms that had been separated, Israel and Judah. He came the closest. Very nearly. You see people from all over the northern kingdom of Israel gathering for Hezekiah's Passover. He sent Levites throughout all of Israel, not just Judah, Israel to bring them in, to call them to come to the Passover. Here is a man mightily used by the Lord God, a courageous man. And God honored himself and he honored the life of this amazing king, I believe, by completely decimating the army of Assyria when Assyria besieged Jerusalem, you recall. When Assyria taunted uh, Hezekiah and Hezekiah's God, God wiped them out, 185,000 of them. We find that in Isaiah 37, verses 36 through 37. And yet, after all of these things that we find about Hezekiah, his faith, his courage, the reformation he brought about, after serving God so faithfully all of his life, we find in Isaiah 38, 1, that the Lord afflicts his loyal servant with a terminal disease. Now some may be tempted in the same situation to scorn the Lord. If this is the way that you reward faithfulness, I want nothing to do with it at all. But Hezekiah, to the contrary, turns his heart to God rather than away from God. Afflictions that come, dear ones, into your life will tend either to harden your life and your heart or they will soften you. They will break you. They will make you contrite. You see, afflictions do not have to harden you. As in the case of Hezekiah, afflictions can soften your heart and make you more pliable than you ever were before and make you reach out to the living God for his help and his strength. In Isaiah 38, verses 2 through 3, we see that Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. He turned to the Lord. The New King James says in the next phrase, And Hezekiah wept bitterly. That doesn't mean he wept in bitterness. That doesn't mean that he was bitter about what God had done, that he was resentful, that he despised God for what had happened. It simply means that he wept greatly. He wept greatly. And God in mercy responds to Hezekiah's prayer and his contrite heart in verses 4 through 5. And God says in verse 5, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. A broken heart. I have seen your tears. And I will add to your days 15 years. Now in Isaiah 38, 9, Hezekiah writes a testimony of praise to God's goodness unto him. 
actually beginning in verse 9 and going uh, through verse 20. Isaiah 38, 9 through 20. And you certainly see, as you read through this, as we've done, you see Hezekiah's grief in verses 10 through 14. You see that. He doesn't hide that grief. He doesn't hide the anguish that's in his soul at all. The pain that's there. He doesn't want to die. I can hardly blame him. And verse 15 gives Hezekiah's response of faith to God's affliction in his life. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. This illness, God spoke to me concerning and he has done it. This is the first part of, of, this, of this testimony. He's recounting what he was going through. And he says, who am I? God has spoken concerning this affliction. Who am I? To question. He's going to do it. And yet in verses 17 through 19, Hezekiah concludes his writing this testimony, he concludes it with praise and thankfulness to God, to God's forgiveness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, that is, from the grave. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. You have forgiven me, Lord, of all of my transgressions. And he goes on to praise God for delivering him from death and adding years unto him. And then we come to the words in Isaiah 38:20, "The Lord was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord." Getting back to the whole issue of, of the, the songs we are to sing in worship, what is Hezekiah saying here? Well, the, the typical, typical way which many of our brothers in Reformed churches would understand this, is that this testimony is a song which Hezekiah wrote. And this particular song was what he referred to that would be sung all the days of his life in the house of the Lord. Which, if that's the case, then it does undermine the exclusive psalmody position. It would seem to me. Well, I have three observations very quickly that I want to make concerning this passage and then we'll move on very quickly to the last passage. But note these, these three observations. First of all, I want to say that the meaning of this verse is far from clear. Let me explain. First, the Hebrew verb that is translated sing in Isaiah 38.20, it is the Hebrew word nagan. Nagan is never translated sing in any of the other 14 places where it is used in the Old Testament. Never once. If this is, the, if this is how it's to be translated, here and only here is it translated to sing. 
And let me show you very clearly. One example is in Psalm 68, verse 25. Psalm 68, 25, where we see a very clear distinction between singers and players on instruments. Psalm 68.25 says, The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. That same word that we find in Isaiah 38.20 from the verb nagin is the word that's used as a participle for the phrase, the players on instruments. See how it's distinguished from singers? That's the way in which every other usage it's playing on an instrument, not singing at all. <clears throat> Thus, in Isaiah 38.20, it should be translated play, not sing. <clears throat> Second, the Hebrew noun that is translated my songs is used elsewhere without exception in the plural to refer to instruments and not songs. Whenever this word is used in the plural, it always refers to instruments, not songs. It's never used in the plural to refer to songs. Thus, an accurate translation of Isaiah 38.20 would be something like this. The Lord delivered me, so we will play my stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Quite a bit different than the way that it reads in the New King James or the King James Version. Well, this is the translation of the Hebrew text by the Greek Septuagint version as well. Greek Septuagint version was translated from the Hebrew into Greek in about 275 B.C. This is the same translation. Playing my stringed instruments, not singing my songs. It's also the view of Hebrew scholars like Kyle and Dalich and, and others as well. That's the first observation about Isaiah 38.20. The second is, I'd have you note that my, the word my, there uh, in the New King James, it's my uh, songs, but whether it's my instruments or my songs, it cannot mean either instruments Hezekiah himself introduced for the first time into worship or songs that Hezekiah composed and introduced into worship for the first time, for that would completely contradict what the Scripture teaches in 2 Chronicles 29, turn there, where we find Hezekiah in a worship service. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 25. Then he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet, 
for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. Now, very clearly it says these instruments were commanded by God to be used, the instruments of David. If he's saying that these are new instruments that he's all of a sudden introducing himself, then we've got a problem. Because then it wasn't a commandment in Second Chronicles 29. But here it states it was a commandment. God commanded. It wasn't optional. With regard to the songs, we saw here in Second <clears throat> Chronicles 29, verse 27, that they sang the song of the Lord. And then in verse 30, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshipped. And so we see in both cases that that which was commanded pertained to the instruments as well as to the songs that were used in worship. In what sense then can Hezekiah say, my instruments, I'll play with my instruments all the days of my life or our life in the house of the Lord? Well, let me offer this as a suggestion. The my in Isaiah 38.20 refers to his own personal part in restoring true worship to Israel by using David's instruments and David's songs. His own personal part. He has recognized, as we could say, my God. I didn't create God just because I call God mine. That by the same token, these instruments are mine because I use them in worship to worship God. Not because they are first introduced by Hezekiah. And finally, the third thing I would say is that it's always a hermeneutical principle that we should follow that that, that which is unclear must always be understood in light of that which is clear. Clearly, Throughout Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, the Psalms were used in the worship of God. I therefore submit that the passage in Isaiah 38.20 does not provide clear warrant for the use of songs outside the Psalter. How about the second passage very quickly now? The second passage is Habakkuk 3.19. Habakkuk. 319 <clears throat> really the whole chapter um, of Habakkuk but uh, particularly when we get to the end of this chapter we find in verse 19 these words the Lord God is my strength he will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels to the chief musician with my stringed instruments to the chief musician with my stringed instruments that's what we want to consider next let me just give very briefly a background to uh, Habakkuk 
The prophecy of Habakkuk is dated around 620 B.C. 620 B.C. toward the end of the reign of righteous King Josiah. The prophecy is actually a dialogue that goes on between God and the prophet Habakkuk. First of all, Habakkuk states his concern in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I won't read uh, all of these passages, but simply summarize what Habakkuk is saying. Habakkuk states his concern in this way. Why is there so much wickedness and lawlessness all around me? And you, Lord, do not put an end to it. Why? The question he asks is in verse 2, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Sound familiar? I think that we've all said, Why, Lord, is this going on? What's going on here? Here's a good book to go to. God answers these questions in Habakkuk. Then God responds in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. God responds by saying that he sees the wickedness and he hears Habakkuk's prayer and he is indeed dealing with lawlessness and violence. How? By raising up the Chaldeans in chapter 1, verse 6. The Babylonians to be his rod of judgment against Israel. God's not blind to what's going on. He's going to judge the wickedness in Israel. But this raises then another concern in Habakkuk's mind in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. How can a holy God use such wicked people as the pagan Babylonians to judge Israel? Israel, who are far, far more righteous than Babylon. How can you use them? Is that not compromising your holiness, Lord? And using these wicked people to judge us? You can almost hear uh, a little spiritual pride that may be coming through. But again, God answers in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. God will not only judge those pagan peoples of the world like Babylon. He'll not only judge them for their unrighteousness, but God will also judge those who are unrighteous within Israel as well. God emphasizes one is not righteous by simply being identified with visible Israel. That's not what makes one righteous. One is not righteous by simply being identified with the church of Jesus Christ. That's not what makes one righteous. But God says in chapter 2, verse 4, Behold the proud... His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That's where Paul derives his doctrine of justification by faith from what Habakkuk says. It's not those who are identified with Israel who are righteous. It is those who are justified and declared righteous by faith in the living God, by trusting in Him to give them a righteousness which they do not possess, an imputed righteousness. That is the only way that we can be righteous in God's sight. 
Not by who our parents were. Not by who our pastor is. Not by the nation in which we live or who our father was. We're righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Yes, God says, I will send judgment upon the nation of Babylon. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. This is, this is Habakkuk recounting God's dealings. He says in verse 12, You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. God does judge the nations. Providentially, He brings His judgment upon wicked nations. But He'll not only judge the nations, He'll also judge even nations where there are Christians, where there are believers, and that judgment that falls upon that nation will affect the righteous as well. It will affect the righteous. Notice what it says in the next verse, in chapter 3, verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people. You were judging Israel, but you went forth for the salvation of your people. Well, how is that, God? Because I'm dealing with the wicked. I'm removing the wicked so the righteous can rule. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Therefore, God says to Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 2, at the very conclusion of his response to Habakkuk, let all the earth keep silence before the Lord. God's in his holy tabernacle in his temple. Be quiet. Don't judge the Lord. The Lord sees. The Lord will recompense the wicked and will reward the righteous. Leave it to God. That's his job. And then in chapter 3 is Habakkuk's prayer of praise to God. And incidentally, it's our praise as well. Don't have time to read that whole chapter. But notice the conclusion that Habakkuk comes to. A glorious testimony of confidence in God regardless of what God brings into his life. Verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and He will make me walk on high heels. Now, what are we to say when we come to the phrase to the chief musician with my stringed instruments? Again, let me make three remarks briefly. First remark is that there is a remarkable parallel to the structure of Habakkuk 3 to the Psalms. You can't deny that. In chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigenoth 
This, uh, this word, this Hebrew word, shigianoth, occurs in Psalm 7.1 and other places as well. Simply, the, the phrase, the word shigianoth, refers to an emotional prayer that's running the extremes of emotions. Very emotional prayer. This chapter, chapter 3 of Habakkuk, also uses the word selah three times, just as you find in the Psalms. In fact, selah only occurs in the Psalms, except for these three times that you find it in Habakkuk. And then you find the phrase, to the chief musician, with my stringed instruments, at the conclusion of chapter 3 of Habakkuk. And this phrase, to the chief musician, is actually a participial form of the verb notzak, notzak. And this phrase as well is used in the same form throughout the superscriptions to the Psalms, to the chief musician, to the chief musician. So there is undoubtedly, we have to say first of all, there's undoubtedly a conscious attempt for Habakkuk to pattern his prayer after the Psalms. That's very clear. Second remark is, however, there is a textual cloud that hangs over Habakkuk 3.19 that causes me to be extremely cautious about using this passage to disprove what the rest of the Old Testament from David forward proves. Let me simply state that without trying to get too uh, much in detail. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Septuagint, translated in about 275, that's one witness, the Aramaic Targums, translated from Hebrew into Aramaic in about 200 B.C. The Syriac Peshitta, translated in about 100 A.D. And the Latin Vulgate, translated from the Hebrew in about 400 A.D. by Jerome, all disagree with the Hebrew Masoretic text at Hebrews, or at, I'm sorry, at Habakkuk 3.19. Four witnesses. Three of them were translated directly from the Hebrew. Some of them very early, certainly before the time of Christ. The Masoretic text, though a very reliable Hebrew text, was standardized in about 500 A.D. All of these witnesses, all of these witnesses were translated from Hebrew prior, some much earlier than the Masoretic text that we have as the basis for our text in this particular point in, in Habakkuk 3.19. Now, what does that all mean? Well, let me simply say this. The Septuagint reads, at, reads this way at Habakkuk 3.19. Follow along if you'd like to in your Bible. This is the way the Septuagint reads. The Lord God is my strength, and he will perfectly strengthen my feet. He mounts me upon high places that I may conquer by his song. That I may conquer by his song. The Syriac Peshitta reads, and I should say the, the Latin Vulgate 
reads very similar to what I just read from the Greek Septuagint. The Syriac Peshitta reads this way, The Lord God is my strength, for he has made my feet like hind's feet, and made me stand on my high places, that I may sing his praise. That I may sing his praise. Now, I'm not prepared to, to automatically disregard what we read from the, the Masoretic text to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. But I, again, would urge us all to reflect upon the fact that it's always best when you have dubious readings or doubtful passages to go back to the very clear passages of Scripture. Without the, super, without the subscription in Habakkuk 3.19 to the chief musician with my stringed instruments, the force of this passage as a song to be used in public worship is minimized greatly. It's minimized greatly. And the third remark simply is this. Since King Josiah specifically followed the commandments of David, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun in the singing of the Levites, in 2 Chronicles 35.15, remember Habakkuk was written about that time during the reign of Josiah. And since Josiah followed the commandments of David and sung the Psalms of David, and since even after the return from exile under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, the Levites sang the Psalms of David, it seems fair to conclude that, again, only the Psalms of David that are found in the inspired hymnal provide a clear warrant for what we should sing in the worship of God. A clear warrant. I don't want to be upsetting everything that Scripture says with regard in the Old Testament as to what God says we should sing upon a doubtful passage. Something that may not be correct. A textual reading, a variant reading. In conclusion, dear ones, let me simply remind you of another reformer, another reformer in worship in God's house to which all of the reformers in the Old Testament pointed. And that reformer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who at the very beginning of his ministry in John 2 chased the money changers out of his father's house, saying, Zeal for thy house. O oh God has consumed me. Zeal for the Father's house had consumed the Lord Jesus Christ. At the conclusion of his ministry, there were the money changers again. It shows us our, our own sinful tendency in heart. Christ chases them out at the beginning of his ministry. They're there three years later. How we are prone to enact what we know God himself has disallowed. And Christ chases them out again saying that you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And he calls it again, my house. This is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it a den of thieves. The Lord, dear ones, was not concerned with simply changing outward forms of worship. He was concerned with zeal within for his house. And he desires there to be zeal for his worship burning in our hearts so that all of our actions and all of our attitudes in worship reflect His holy zeal. Let us as well 
Dear ones, pray earnestly for a new reformation in the worship of God. And let us sing the inspired psalms as all the great reformers in the Bible have done. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You for giving to us the truth. Lord, we acknowledge that we are ignorant and that apart from You, our God, we cannot understand it aright. Give us the courage to persevere in seeking to know how we are to worship You aright. And Lord, where we have failed, forgive us. Where we have not yet understood aright, we pray that You would give us insight so that, Lord, we might follow in the paths of the Reformers throughout Scripture and even the Lord Jesus Christ and those of our of our forefathers in the Reformation. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying His word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind. 
as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.